I'd like to read with you from Romans 3 and 4. We want to start just a few, a few verses at the end of Romans 3, starting at verse 27, and then, and then Romans 4, where it talks about the role of faith in the life of a believer. Starting in verse 27, Paul says, What then becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one, who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. But what then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the faith, or according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, just a word here. Um, the word for believed is pistuo. Okay? That's the, the Greek word. The word for faith is pistis. They're the same root. So when you see in the New Testament, believed or had faith, that's the same word. So it says Abraham believed God. He had faith in God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted a gift, but as his due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised, who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world, did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, Abraham believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No, unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith, as he gave glory to God, 
fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Amen. Now summarizing that teaching of faith, Article 22 of our confession says, We believe that to attain the true knowledge of this great mystery, the Holy Spirit kindles in our hearts an upright faith which embraces Jesus Christ with all his merits, appropriates him, and seeks nothing more besides him. For it must needs follow, either that all things which are requisite to our salvation are not in Jesus Christ, or if all things are in him, that then those who possess Jesus Christ through faith have complete salvation in him. Therefore, for any to assert that Christ is not sufficient, but that something more is required besides him, would be too gross a blasphemy. For hence it would follow that Christ was but half a savior. Therefore, we justly say with Paul that we are justified by faith alone, or by faith apart from works. However, to speak more clearly, we do not mean that faith itself justifies us, for it is only an instrument by which or with which we embrace Christ our righteousness. But Jesus Christ, imputing to us all his merits and so many holy works which he has done for us and in our stead, is our righteousness. And faith is an instrument that keeps us in communion with him in all his benefits, which when they become ours are more than sufficient to acquit us of all our sins. Amen. Beloved, when I was... A kid, um, growing up, we used to do a lot of camping and, and boating and spending time out, outdoors in the summer. We often did that at a place called Shenango Lake. It's a beautiful place in uh, northwestern Pennsylvania. Uh, one of the, the rare treats that we occasionally enjoyed was boating at night. Have you ever done that? It's just absolutely tranquil. The water is smooth. You can see more stars than you imagined could, could exist. You go out and you just feel like you're utterly alone in the world. You shut off all the lights except the bow lights and the stern light that you have to have on. And, and it's just peaceful. But one night a friend of mine was taking a ride at night. And, uh, and he got into trouble. He was in the big section of the lake. Uh, which was separated from the section where the campground was by a, a railroad. Uh, you could pass between those sections of lake only by going under this one bridge that, the, that carried the railroad. But while he was out in this big section, the, the moon went behind clouds, and it became unbelievably dark. And so as he came toward the railroad, he just kind of was guessing where he was, so he pulled out his spotlight because he knew he didn't dare approach it blind. Because not only were there bridge abutments, but, but the shore right there was big rocks and there were concrete structures under the, the surface of the water. And on the other side, the lake went for an awful long distance, but right under the surface was the old rail line from before the lake was flooded and some concrete structures there. Not a, not a pleasant place to beach your boat. So he pulled out his spotlight, and it was broken. And he was dead. He couldn't 
miss the passage on one side or the other, or it could be a tragedy. He had to just sit there and wait until someone came through under the bridge, thankfully a fisherman, and, and showed him where the bridge was. And then he could traverse safely through the proper space. When it comes to faith and the, what we believe about faith, we find ourselves in a very similar situation. There are many wrong things that have been taught and believed about faith. But if we embrace those, we're going to be dashed on the rocks on one side or the other. And we're going to miss one of the most important teachings of the Christian religion. On the one side, there are those who believe that faith is simply believing the right things, the right propositions, the right truths about God. But that's just head knowledge. And head knowledge alone is dead faith. And dead faith doesn't save anyone. But on the other side, there are those who see faith as something that we do, something that we accomplish, something that we are able to use to earn something before God. As though, as though faith was a weak work, but, but something that we accomplish that God says, you know what, that's enough. That shows me that you're serious. Now I'll make up the rest. But either of those will sink the boat, you see. If we would be saved, if we would be joined to Christ, we must find that one narrow way that goes through the center. And we're in the dark. We can't do it on our own. We need the light of Scripture to show us the way. That's the only way that we won't make an utter shipwreck of it all. And that's what Article 22 seeks to show us. We think faith, that's just one little tiny part, but, but it's an essential part of what we're taught in the Bible because apart from understanding this, we're lost. And so what we're taught in Article 22 is that God justifies us through the gift of faith. And every word in that theme is essential. God justifies us through the gift of faith. Now we're going to look at what those words mean. But the first thing we have to see is that this is a gift that relies on Christ fully. That's our first point. Faith is a gift that relies on Christ fully. The first thing our confession says is, we believe that to attain the true knowledge of this great mystery. Hold on there a second. We need to understand what's being said here. What is the great mystery of which we need to attain knowledge? The mystery is what the confession's been talking to us about. The mystery of how a holy God could reconcile to himself a people that are hopelessly admired in sin. The mystery is how a man could avoid sin and be qualified to enter into God's presence as our perfect high priest. The mystery is how the sacrifice that we need to overcome our sin, to pay the debt for our sin, could be attained. The mystery is how God and man could inhabit one being to serve as both our high priest and our perfect sacrifice to atone for our sin and to reconcile us to God. That's the mystery of which we need knowledge. And we need true knowledge. That means we need more than just an academic grasp of theological concepts. 
There's a huge difference between knowing about and knowing truly. Right? When Adam was in the garden alone, and God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. And then he made all the other creatures and brought them, or he had, he, he had made them. He brought them all before Adam, and Adam named them all, and none was found that was perfect. None was found that would complete him. And then God put him to sleep, and took a rib from his side, and made Eve. When Adam looked on Eve, he knew about her. He was able to immediately see, this one is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This is the one who perfectly complements me. He knew about her. But then Genesis 4 verse 1 says, Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived. That's a different kind of knowledge. That's a much more complete knowledge. And so to hear, our confession speaks of the knowledge that we must have of Christ. It must be not just an academic knowledge, it must be a relational knowledge. We need to not just know about Christ from a distance, but up close and personal, we need to know Him. We need to experience Him. We need to be joined to Him. True knowledge of Christ is that which we gain not just by reading theological books or listening to theologically astute people. It's what God gives us when he kindles in our heart an upright faith, as our confession says. The knowledge we need is of the essence of faith, and that's a gift of the Holy Spirit. The Bible tells us that often. You all know what Ephesians 2 verses 8 and 9 say. By grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of, boast, of, of works so that no one may boast. Our salvation comes through faith, and the faith that we need is that which the Lord gives, which He bestows on us as a gift. Later on, Paul prays that God may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. So that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. That's the knowledge that we need of Christ. It's not a distant academic thing. It's that which causes us to encounter Christ so that Christ inhabits us, so that we, we not only comprehend Him in the mind, but we know Him truly. And we're joined to Him, united to Him. This is that which we cannot get merely by studying books. Not that that's unimportant. But it must come through the power of the Holy Spirit at work within us. Revealing to us who we are and who Christ is and what Christ has done and why that's essential and what that means to us. Our confession says this faith that God gives us embraces Jesus Christ with all His merits. Now what are merits? To merit something is to earn it, to deserve it. If you work hard at your job, when the boss gives you your paycheck at the end of the week, you have merited that paycheck, right? It's not a gift. You earned it. What are the merits of Jesus Christ? This refers, first of all, to our forgiveness for sin. He paid the debt for our sin. He endured in His flesh 
all the, the punishment that our sins deserved. So he earned our forgiveness. But more than that, he also perfectly followed all of God's commands. He did everything God commanded man to do. He avoided every sin God commanded man to avoid. And so he earned not only our forgiveness, but also our righteousness, our holiness. Those are the merits of Christ which Christian faith embraces. All of his faithfulness to God's commands, his active obedience, but also all of his enduring of our punishment, his passive obedience. We hear that reflected in what we read from Romans 4 verse 25. He was delivered up for our trespasses, his passive obedience. And he was raised for our justification, his active obedience. True faith doesn't merely confess the merits of Christ as a, a factual proposition. True faith says the merits of Christ are for us. He died for our sake. He lived for our righteousness. He walked before God and now enters into the presence of God that we might be delivered. It's what we heard in Galatians 2 verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The apostle says he did it for me. And so we confess Jesus' obedience, his suffering, his merits. It was all done for me, for my sake, and nothing more is needed. By thus embracing Christ through this, this living faith that takes hold of him, we receive not just a certificate that says, you're now forgiven. You're now a Christian. No, we receive Christ Himself. We are joined to Him. We're united to Him. So that no matter where we go, what we experience, Christ is with us. We can enter into the presence of God in prayer knowing that God's really hearing us. God's really answering our prayer. Because it's not just us that's praying. Christ is with us. We can go through that trying time without fear, without doubt, without worry because we know that, that our shepherd is at our side. And He's enough. That's the second thing we see here. We rely on Christ fully, but we rely on Christ's sufficiency also. That's our second point. He's... Faith is a gift that reveals Christ's sufficiency. Kids, that's a big word, right? I'm sorry, we use some big words sometimes when we uh, talk about God. But that's because we want to be exact. Sufficiency is a word that talks about whether we have or whether we are enough. Right? Um, if you're about to, young people, if you're about to buy a car, right? You save up some money. You think about the car you want. right? I remember the, the first time one of my kids wanted to buy a car. She says, how much money do I need? I said, well, that depends on the car you want, right? And she said, well, I, I just need one that will get me from point A to point B, which happened to be you know, point A in Pella, point B in Sioux Falls. It's a six-hour drive. You need something reliable. So I said, well, you know, how much work are you willing to do? And she said, I'm willing to work on it. Okay, so we, we find a few cars. We go and look at it. And she said, well... This one's a good price. I said, well, you can get it cheaper than that. She said, oh, really? I said, yeah, but you need to buy tires too. And that'll about double the cost. 
And it also needs new struts and new brakes and a few other parts. And it needs some body work. So that's going to bring the price up even higher. And that's where you start to say, have I saved sufficiently? Have I saved enough? Right? Well, with our salvation, we have to ask about sufficiency. Is what I'm trusting in enough to make us right with God? Is it enough to give us eternal life? Is it enough? Or do we have to add to it? See, that's, that's part of what was restored to the church in the age of the Reformation. Throughout the Middle Ages, what the, the so-called Dark Ages, one of the reasons that it was a dark age is because the knowledge of the truth was corrupted. Part of the way that it was corrupted is that the church had begun to believe that Christ wasn't enough. Oh, He was necessary. As a matter of fact, the Catholic Catechism still says this. He is necessary. When you're baptized into Christ, they believe that, that all of your guilt from original sin is gone. And all of the guilt from the sins you've committed to that point are gone. And you receive the Holy Spirit, they believe, so that then you maintain communion with Christ. So He is necessary. But from that point on, if you continue to sin, now you have to make penance. You have to do part of the work of restoring yourself to God. And if you die with sin still on your record, then you have to suffer in purgatory so that through your suffering you're cleansed. Through your suffering you're made right. So Jesus is necessary, but I have to add to it. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says we can't be saved by anything that we've done, by anything that we merit. For one thing, we can't obey God's law perfectly, and that's what God demands, perfect obedience. But even if we could obey perfectly, we can't earn even the smallest part of our forgiveness. Our best works, our best actions are stained with sin. They're unworthy. So the Bible says you can't be saved by obeying, by by earning, by doing. Galatians 2.16, we just heard that. A person is not justified by works of the law. Galatians 2 verse 10, all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the law and do them. And so Romans 3 verse 28, we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Then Romans shows us some examples. Abraham was justified before the Lord, not by what he had done, but by faith. In fact, it says, he didn't act, he didn't obey until after he was justified. His obedience simply solidified, demonstrated the salvation that he had by faith before he obeyed. So too with David. David calls that man blessed, who receives Forgiveness through faith, through what Jesus has done. We just sang about it, right? We sang about it in Psalm 32. It's not by what I've done, but by what the Lord has done, that my sins are covered, that my trespasses are forgiven, that I'm received by the Lord. It's in the light of all that that our confession says, for any to assert that Christ is not sufficient, but that something more is required would be too gross a blasphemy. For hence it would follow that Christ was only half a Savior. On the cross, Jesus, after He had suffered for hours, not just the physical torment of the cross, 
but the spiritual and emotional agony of knowing that God had rejected him because our sins were born on his back. When he had suffered all of that, Jesus spoke one word in the Greek. Tetelestai. It is finished. It means nothing more has been done or needs to be done. Nothing more needs to be accomplished. The price has been paid. The debt has been satisfied. All that is necessary for you to be right with God is complete. And he meant it. To deny that, to question that, to contradict that is in fact blasphemy. Because what Jesus said is clear and undoubted. And to question it, to say no I need to add to it is to call the Son of God a liar and that we must never do. Therefore, true faith rests in Christ's sufficiency. We sinned, but Jesus paid all that we owe. We fell short, but Jesus makes us entirely righteous in God's sight. We are unholy, unworthy, unable in the sight of God, but Jesus was holy for us and applies that holiness to us. He is sufficient for our every need. And we receive what He has done by the open hand of faith. And that's the last thing we see here is that true faith is a gift that receives Christ passively. Thus far we've seen that we receive Jesus by faith alone, not by any works that we've done. And through Christ we thus are, are justified. In other words, God looks at us and says, not guilty. It's like when, you, when you're brought into the courtroom. And the prosecutor lays out all of the evidence against you. And the judge looks at that evidence and says, it doesn't prove what you're seeking to prove. Not guilty. That's justification. Through Jesus, we are justified. Not by what we've done, but by what He has done. We hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. And then Paul writes, God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. And then in chapter 4, he says, What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. He had faith in God and it was counted to him as righteousness. It's not by what we do, but by faith that we receive all Jesus has done. But we need to be very clear about what that entails. Some have misunderstood that as I said at the very start, thinking that faith is somehow the reason for our justification. As though faith is that one small work that God requires, and then He accepts that as enough. Like, okay, well, if you're willing to do just a little bit, sometimes people do that with charitable works. You know, they, they know their neighbor's been out of work. They know that they, they're out of money. They just, they need help. But he wants to honor his, you know, pride a little bit. And so he says, you know what, if, if you could come over and help me fix my car, that'd be great, you know. And after he fixes his car, he says, here, I want to pay your bills and, and get you some groceries. And what he gives him is far more valuable than what the guy did. But, you know, he takes that as enough. Well, some people regard faith that way, as though we have to do something. Right? And God takes that little something as enough. But that's not what faith is. Faith is empty. 
It's not an accomplishment. It's, there's nothing of value in our faith. In fact, it's a gift to us. We can't even exercise that faith. You understand, faith is knowledge, belief, and confidence. If we break it down according to Lord's Day 7 of our catechism. In other words, we know what the Bible says about us and about Jesus. We believe that that's true. And we're confident in it for ourselves, right? That's what faith is. But we don't have that apart from the Lord. The Lord is the one who puts us in a place where we'll hear the truth of the gospel. The Lord's the one who works in our hearts to enable us to believe that as being true. And the Lord's the one who says, that's true for you. So every last piece of faith, of what faith is, is a gift to us from the Lord. And even then, it's simply the means by which we're united to Jesus. I saw a beautiful example of this in a book I read a while back. It was a book about the, the sinking of the USS Indianapolis. It was a ship in World War II. Um, it was in the Pacific Ocean and it was struck by a torpedo from a Japanese uh, submarine. And it was astounding. It was just a matter of moments before the whole ship was gone. Most of the crew with it. And the story was about how those remaining survived. And it was a harrowing tale. Four days in the sea. Surrounded by sharks. The water covered over with oil. Many of the men injured. Their wounds being made excruciating by the salt water. But the worst part of all of it, survivors testified, was the lack of water. They're, they're surrounded by water. But water with such a high salt content that one drink would kill you. They were desperately thirsty, surrounded by water, but not a drop they could drink. Marine Sergeant Giles McCoy was one of those men. And he, uh, he was instrumental. Many of the other sailors and marines testified that McCoy was instrumental in saving many of them. When they were just about to drift underwater, he would grab them and pull them up on a piece of debris and he would gather life jackets and, and fashion them into rafts that the men could rest upon. When finally help arrived, the ship that pulled up, McCoy was able to climb the net onto its deck and there he collapsed, just about dead. And they dragged him to a bunk, but he was so weakened, he couldn't do anything. He couldn't move. He was desperately in need of water, but he couldn't even pick up a small cup. And so a, a sailor was tasked with hydrating him. He sat there with a bowl of water and a teaspoon. And one spoon at a time poured water into his mouth. And McCoy survived. But he only survived because that sailor sat there for hours on end, feeding him one spoonful of water at a time. Brothers and sisters, that is faith. It's the spoon by which we receive Christ and all His merits. The spoon is not something we've made, not something we've created. It's something that God has given us. And in fact, he's the one who exercises it. He's the, the sailor who sits at our side, feeding us one spoonful of faith at a time. We are entirely and utterly passive. How was Abraham saved? Romans 4 says, 
not by faith, not, or not by works, not by the things that he accomplished, but, Romans 4 verse 13, through the righteousness of faith, the righteousness that is given to us by faith, the righteousness that is imparted to us by means of faith. Faith is the instrument that receives Christ and all that he has done. As we come to know Jesus, embracing the truth about who he is and what he has done. As we begin believing that it's all true and that it's all necessary and that it was sufficient for us. As we come to know Christ, we receive him through that faith that God is imparting to us. Romans 1 verse 17. In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The righteousness is from God alone. Jesus earned it. The Holy Spirit brings it to us just as the Father ordained. We're passive. We're bystanders. We're recipients. And God justifies us through His gift of faith. Beloved, let us never forget that we are entirely and utterly indebted to God for the salvation that we possess. And let us never fail to give Him thanks for that gift by which we're joined to Christ, the only, the fully sufficient, the perfect Savior who does it all for us. Amen. Let's pray. Father, You have given us exactly what we need that we might be rescued from death and restored to eternal life. Father, we pray that You would deepen and strengthen the faith that You have bestowed upon us and enable us to stand in awe that You loved us that much so that in response to this gift of faith, we might devote our entire lives to giving You praise. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. And let us begin giving Him praise now as we stand and sing together number three, 378. I know not why God's wondrous grace will sing all the stanzas. <laughs>